Good morning. Resonant. Um, to our previewers, really would like to extend a, uh, a warm welcome. If you, would you be willing, will you stand up just so we can say hello? <laughs> Greetings. Hey, guys. Hey. Wow. Nice. Welcome. Welcome. We are really glad you are here. Um, I am supposed to uh, remind you, or at least let you know, that immediately following chapel, there will be a charting your course um, panel discussion up here, and it's going to be awesome, so you should come. Uh, so as we, approach, as we approach Holy Week and Easter, um, there's a passage that I always end up going back to right around this time um, in John chapter 12, but set a little context for it. Um, the other night, uh, my youngest daughter, Flannery, was in her room doing homework, um, and I was in the bedroom reading, and, and I hear uh, what sounded like sobbing. If that's, when I hear that, usually it's somebody crying or laughing and I think they're sobbing and I go check on them and they, they anyway, she was in fact sobbing. So I went in and sat down and, and we, we were talking and she had just read a, uh, an article and the article was about, um, is about walruses. So apparently, um, with, uh, some of the, the, uh, global warming that's happening in the, the Arctic and polar ice caps. Um, it's impacting walruses to a pretty great degree. So apparently, I didn't know this about walruses, but walrus behavior, apparently they climb up a little bit onto the top of rocks to sun themselves, and then they sort of flop off of the rock and slide back down to their happy place. Um, well, it appears that some of their happy places have become higher than they once were. So they climb up, but flopping ends up resulting in death. So the walruses die, and my daughter was distraught. Um, so she's crying, and she's like, Dad, what are we doing to the earth? What's happening? So we ended up in a fantastic discussion about uh, the tension of living in a place that is not your true home. Um, so... After that discussion, I've been thinking a fair bit about home and what home is and what home means and how we are made to have a home. Like, we are created in the image of God to have a home. And when you think of what home is, you know, you think, you think comfort and stability, warmth, security, love, being known, a place where you can be transparent, um, a place where... Um, you can be truly joyful in the midst of all circumstances. But the crazy thing about a home is it can't ever be a physical place. Like you think of your home as your house, right? Or maybe your, your hometown. But if you move away, anybody who's moved away and gone back to visit, you realize that, that it's different. You can never go back and have that thing that we call home. So we live in this fascinating tension, if you will, um, in this world, a tension in being in this place that is not our home, but we know and we deeply long for, like in the heart and deep recesses of our souls, for our true home. By this, I don't mean that the world is evil. I'm not talking about this is not our true home, therefore it's an evil place. But instead, that the world is a beautiful yet fractured taste of our eternal home. 
a world that's at once beautiful, majestic, reflective of God's glory, but is also racked by sickness and sin, injustice and death. So we live in this tension, right? This tension of God's creation and its beauty and majesty and the awareness that it's been corrupted by the fall. Tension of man being created in God's image, God's beauty, the complexity of who we are, and yet the reflection and reality that we've been corrupted by sin and death and then that tension of being saved and brought into the kingdom of God and at times uh, longing for something outside of the kingdom of God. And then to make it even maybe more personal, um, we get different tastes of this not being our true home at different times of life, different stages of life. Um, as I, my daughters are getting older, I have a daughter who's a sophomore here and uh, my younger daughter Flannery is a sophomore in high school, starting to look at what life is going to look like um, with them out of the house, um, feeling my own mortality, my hearing, like this may sound kind of funny, but my hearing is not good, and I feel it going away. And I know, I mean, I'm paying the price for the many, many copious amounts of concerts that I attended in high school um, and sat really close to speakers without earplugs, which don't do. Um, but sensing the fleeting nature of this world, longing for my real home. Instead, though, Instead of removing us from this place and this tension, which God could have done, Jesus does something very different. He enters into this place of tension, takes on flesh and becomes man. His humiliation, being made a man with flesh subject to death, he came that he might redeem us and that he might teach us about our true home. So in John 12, we get this amazing thing happening in a home. Um, but just a little context. So six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had, risen, had raised from the dead. Okay, so two things. Passover is about to happen. Passover when uh, folks would gather in Jerusalem, um, where the numbers would swell from typically a 50,000 town city into about 200,000 people where they would come to celebrate the Exodus, God delivering his people from 430 years of slavery in Egypt. Uh, more specifically, where they would celebrate God calling his people to sacrifice and slaughter lambs and take the blood of the lambs and put them on the doorposts and lentils of their home so that when God's spirit came in judgment through Egypt, his people would be saved from death. Jesus comes to this town in Bethany six days before the Passover where that's going to be celebrated. The home of Lazarus whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And just one chapter before in John chapter 11 is where Jesus shows up in Bethany. His good friend Lazarus is in the tomb for four days, dead. And Jesus calls him forth from the grave. His final, his greatest miracle foreshadowing Jesus' own death and resurrection. But Jesus, don't forget, is a stranger in his own land. He's the stranger par excellence, if you will. He's the creator, but he comes into his own world to be despised. He's about to become the Passover lamb for his people. He's about to have his blood shed that it might cover us, that we might be delivered from sin and death 
But as he's on his way, what does he do? He seeks out his friends. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where, Je- where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Jesus is about to become a sacrifice to secure our rescue from sin, and he wants to be with his people. The heart of God is not to separate from the one whose sins will doom him, but to press in closer to them, to love them, and more importantly, to give them an opportunity to worship him. So here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table, and what a celebration that must have been. A celebration of Lazarus' life, a celebration in Jesus' honor as the giver of life. Just a short time, that house had been a place of mourning from Lazarus' death, and now they get to celebrate. And when we talk about strangers, right? Strangers in this land, we talk about Jesus as a stranger. Can you imagine Lazarus, right? Lazarus was dead, not mostly dead, but (laughs) a few of you get it, right? Uh, He's dead. Um, He's been in paradise. He's now raised back to life. The tension of being in a place that is not your true home. Yet they celebrate. There are some amazing dinners. This one was, I think, one of them. Um, I think of amazing dinners. I think of uh, Frodo and the Fellowship eating with Tom Bombadil. Um, That's a good dinner. Um, But there's one in Scripture that has more in common with uh, what took place here. And it was generations before. And it was after God had brought the people out of Egypt. When Moses leads them to Mount Sinai in Exodus 34, something very cool happens. And talking about Exodus, and when they get there to the mountain, God invites Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel to come up the mountain into his presence to worship. So as they go up to the mountain, Moses, that entire crew of people, Scripture says that they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. They ate a covenant meal in the presence of God. Just as Lazarus, Martha, Mary, the family, they're eating in the presence of God. But while we don't hear too much about the response of the Israelites at that meal in Exodus 34, we're told that God does something interesting. He doesn't raise his hand against these leaders. No judgment. In his presence, no judgment. And they saw God, and they ate and drank. And now at Lazarus' home, another meal with God and his people, two of them are going to raise their hands to God. One of them is going to be in worship, and one is going to be in betrayal. One is going to be out of an invitation to worship, and one is going to be from greed. So Scripture tells us that as they're eating, And you can kind of picture this in your mind, if you will. Um, So the way they would have eaten, they would have reclined. um, They would have reclined heads in towards the middle, the food there, feet out kind of towards the outside. So imagine kind of like almost like the spoke of a wheel with your feet outside. Um, And we're told that Mary takes about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So as they eat, 
Mary is filled with gratitude, humble, thankful adoration, and she can't not act. So what does she do? She gets this nard, probably the most expensive thing that she owns, and she pours it on Jesus' feet. So picture this. She would have to get down at his feet, open the jar, pour the nard onto his feet. And as she's pouring it, she's not being judicious. She's not holding back. She's pouring. It's an act of love. And she obviously gets too much. So what she does, she takes her hair, lets it down, and with her hair begins to wipe the perfume from his feet. What a wonderful act of of humility and love and intimacy. Scripture says also that the home was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. The last time we heard about a smell was in John chapter 11. It was the stench of the grave where Lazarus had been dead for four days and his sister said, oh, don't open it, Lord. He's been in there four days. It will surely stink. But they open it and the stench of death comes out of the tomb. And now, with her act of worship instead, there's the fragrance of worship. But Mary's worship broke some cultural norms, two in particular. One, she placed herself at the feet of a rabbi, something only disciples would do. But then she did something more intimate. She let her hair down, something a woman would not do in culture of men, especially with a rabbi there. And you expect, like you can almost imagine when I picture this, things are going, it's fun, people are talking, celebrating, and Mary goes and loves Jesus and pours it on his feet. And you have to imagine people started to watch her, right? Like that's not like a super sly, subtle act. And they're watching and she takes down her hair and they're like, oh man, is Jesus going to say something? But it's not Jesus who speaks. Instead, it's Judas. She worships. And here's what he does. One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Notice he doesn't mention her hair. He doesn't mention where she's seated at his feet. Instead, he points out the value of the perfume. It's worth a year's wages. It's worth a lot of money. And it was Jewish custom during Passover to give gifts to the poor. But before we get the wrong idea, before we think that he's being a good, upstanding citizen, John gives us a glimpse into the darkness, really, that's in his heart. It says, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. He was greedy. But, in all honesty, what he said probably sounded really good to everyone listening. It probably sounded logical. It probably sounded practical. And it probably sounded spiritual. Here she is wasting a year's worth of wages by pouring it on Jesus' feet when we could have taken that money and given it to the poor. He attributes darkness to her worship and calls his darkness light exactly like Satan did, exactly like the deceiver did in the garden when he called God's commands evil and his own freeing. But then Jesus does speak. He weighs in, and here's what he says. He says, leave her alone. 
It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Okay, before we go there, back to the, back to the meal in Exodus 34. So you have Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, the 70 elders. Um, before they go up, though, to eat, God commands them to take bulls and to slaughter the bulls. And Moses sets up 12 stone pillars to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And they take half of the blood and pour the half on the altars. And then they take the other half of the blood and they throw it onto the people. So they're covering the altars and they're covering the people in the blood of the bulls. It's a covenant. And what the covenant says is, if you're not obedient to the commands that you're being given and that you're agreeing to, the blood of the bulls who've just been slaughtered will be a picture of what will happen to you. It's a sign of judgment. Well, here, Jesus, at their meal, the blood that's going to come is going to be his. He's preparing to be the sacrifice. His blood is going to cover his people, not in judgment, but in grace. And he says to, says to them, leave her alone. And then the, the, the language there is a little tricky in the Greek but it's more of a question than it is a statement. He says, leave her alone. Do you suppose she should have saved it for the day of my burial? You'll always have the poor, but you will not always have me. In no uncertain terms, he tells them this. Worship is the right response to my love and to my actions. I'm here now, and I won't be for long. What she's doing is the exact right response and what you would expect. He invites worship from her, just as he did the elders of Israel who came up and ate the meal with them. So I'd like to return to this concept of home. What is it to have a home, to have a place of comfort, joy, love, peace? With Jesus in their midst, with his kingdom underway, we see two people respond to him. Judas, we see, turns away from Jesus and into self, seeking his own greed and comfort. And I would argue that that's exactly what happens when you try to make this world our home. When we try to make this our place of comfort and stability, security, hope, we will clutch and we will grasp and we will turn inward because this world cannot provide those things. We are strangers in a strange land. But we follow one who also didn't have a home. He said, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man, I have nowhere even to lay my head. Come, follow me. And he invites us to worship. And I don't want to overextend, I don't want to press too far this idea of home, because It's there. But what Mary does is exactly right. They're in her home. And Jesus is there. And she worships. And I think she had probably an understanding that we may not quite have in the same way. She just watched her brother die. Be enshrouded with grave clothes placed in a tomb with a rock rolled over it, and Jesus Christ shows up, they roll the tomb back, 
and he calls the man from the dead. Lazarus, come out. He comes out alive. I think Mary has a sense that this world is not her final home. And she worships. And what happens is she worships the one who will be her home. I think she knows, and something we have to learn, is that here and now, when we talk about an eternal home, it can be super ethereal, right? Like you can read Revelation 21, you can read new, new heavens and new earth, but for here and now, until the consummation, until Christ brings the new heavens and the new earth, Jesus Christ is our home. He calls us to draw near to him and he will draw near to us. He promises that an eternal heavens and earth are coming and he's going to bring them homes in his father's mansion. But for here and now, he is our home. He is our rest, our joy, our stability, our comfort. You are going to feel, I guarantee it, and you probably already do in ways I can't even imagine, that you know this is not your home. And you know it in the depths of your soul. You know you don't belong here. So good and so beautiful and so complex and so majestic, but things happen and you go, oh, this isn't right. People die from cancer. Tragedy happens. Walruses fall off rocks and die. Like, it's not right. There's discord and there's tension. There's an already, there's a not yet, but Christ is the bridge there. And he's the bridge who went to the cross in our place that he might die the death that we deserved, that he might call us to our eternal home with him. And the beauty there is, think about this, in Exodus 34, the people got to see God, right? But the description is what was under his feet. In John 12 with Jesus, they got to see Jesus in flesh. God fully man, fully God. When he comes with the new heavens and the new earth, we will see Jesus Christ in his full glory as he truly is. And we will be raised in new resurrection bodies, the people that we are truly created to be, living forever in our eternal home with he who is our eternal home. Take hope, persevere, when you don't feel like it's right here, you're right. But walk faithfully here that we might see him and be with him there. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself to us in the Scripture. Thank you for the way that you have desired through all of history to be with your people. Thank you for the meal that you had with Moses and the elders of Israel. Thank you for the meal and celebration that you had with Lazarus, his sisters, and those around. Thank you, Lord, for the meal that we get to come to when we sup um, on the Lord's day and we take of communion. And thank you, Lord, for the wedding supper of the Lamb that awaits us. Father, help us to be faithful in the tension we now live in. Help us, Lord, to recognize that when we know this is not our true home, that you would give us eyes to see you to draw near to you, to worship you, and to look forward to the day when we see you face to face in full glory. 
as you truly are. Lord, please be with us. Persevere us. Be with us by your spirit. We ask, we pray in the matchless and powerful name of Jesus.